Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in scripture. So glad you're here. I'm Kevin McCollum with Light Bears. I'm sitting with Andrew Brill, who's one of our staff members. He runs the discipleship ministry, serves as director of discipleship, and he's also one of our frequent teachers at the Institute classes uh, around our different campuses. And today, Andrew, we're going to talk about um, Kings and Chronicles. It's a couple of books, uh, four books that you've taught on a few times now. And I think sometimes people get confused because you see some of the same content and um, give us an idea of what's in first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles kind of set the stage, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It comes in a, in a series in the Bible in the old Testament where you have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. If you've ever learned a song that has all the Bible, you know, <laughs> that's the part that you roll through. Um, but basically um, in, you know, I'll back up just a little bit. Samuel, first and second Samuel includes um, the story of Samuel, who's a prophet and the last of the judges. Um, and then he anoints Saul as the first king. And then the second king is David after that. And so Samuel, the books of first and second Samuel, um, which were originally one book um, in the Hebrew Bible, that that continues through the reign of David. And basically Samuel ends as David hands the kingdom over to his son, Solomon. And so that's where Kings picks up. And so Kings is really, in essence, the story of the Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it picks up with Solomon and is going to take us from that point all the way until the nation of Israel is is taken into captivity. And so um, that's going to include um, the nation splitting up into two and the northern kingdom going into captivity and the southern kingdom and that sort of thing. So, um, And then Chronicles, so, so just to back up and clarify, Kings is from the beginning of Solomon's rule through the entire history of the nation of Israel before it goes into captivity. What Chronicles is essentially going to do is it's going to include what's the subject matter in Samuel and in Kings. So it's basically Samuel and Kings in a more compressed way. Uh, and so it starts with um, a genealogy and starts with Saul, the first king, and also goes all the way through captivity and actually has the return from captivity, captivity as well. That's how it ends. So so that's what's in there. And so in a sense, chronicle you can think of Chronicles as Samuel and Kings put together. Um, it's going to cover a period... Uh, I mean, I, I think it's helpful to have kind of a bookmark. It's a David basically is about a thousand BC is, is the year we're looking at. Um, the kingdom splits into North and South around 930 BC. And from that point on, the Northern kingdom is going to be called Israel and the Southern kingdom is going to be called Judah. Judah is the largest of the 12 tribes that, um, and so the Southern kingdom takes on that name. Um, and so you've got the Northern kingdom of Israel, the Southern kingdom of Judah, and then they kind of follow separate paths and um, that, that lasts for about 200 years. And then in, in 722 BC, uh, the nation of Assyria takes the Northern kingdom, Israel into captivity. Uh, and then the Southern kingdom lasts another 140 years or so. And then, in, so it's 586 BC that Judah, the Southern kingdom is taken into captivity. Um, and that's by Babylon. And so sometimes I think it's helpful to kind of recall that we look at Israel as kind of this, monolithic, here's, here's this experience. Well, you know, if, if I dropped you into, you know, mid 600 BCs, you know, you, you would know Judah and Israel as in a sense, separate nations. That would be your experience. Now from, from the biblical perspective, there's, there's still the chosen people of God. Right. 
So there's a difference there between the human experience and the divine perspective there. But just politically speaking, it would feel as if there were two separate. Yeah, um, and sometimes they were friends. Right. So depending on, you know, what sort of era you were there, you could see two um, allies, yep. brothers, cousins, and sometimes they were bitter enemies. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so when you're reading through it, sometimes you'll see Judah and you're thinking, okay, now who is this? And then you'll see Israel and you'll say, okay, Israel, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to get them. And and so just, I think it's helpful just to kind of frame it up in that way of Northern kingdom is called Israel. Southern kingdom is called Judah. Um, there's a couple of real familiar events in here, familiar figures. You got Solomon, you got the building of a temple, you've got um, kind of the best known prophets, maybe Elijah and Elisha. That's where their stories show up. You have some some kings that are somewhat well known. I mean, you've got this guy Ahab, who's a negative figure. His wife Jezebel, which you know, I mean, that that's a Jezebel's a name that carries connotations to this day. So you you have some stuff back there. Um, the, the prophets that we'll talk about later in the year, Isaiah, Micah, the, all of those guys in general are prophesying during this period. Not all of them, but the majority of them all. Jonah's in this time frame. So so basically, the way that I, I would kind of frame this up is this is the story of the kingdom of Israel. It covers about 450 years, but it's the story of the kingdom of Israel. Um, and it's um, it's a story that's going to show, and I, I jotted this down when I taught it a couple years back, it shows... God's demand for hearts devoted to him, the destruction that comes from sin, and God's commitment to his promise and his remnant. Remnant's a big word here. Um, and, and, and so basically, that's this idea. Second Chronicles 21 says the Lord was, was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David, and since he had promised to give him a lamp, to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. And so that's kind of this place of big story, man's going to screw it up a lot, and yet God's going to continue to be faithful in the midst of that. Yeah, it really fits our overall meta narrative, doesn't it? Yeah. Just this great theme, you know, God dwelling among this holy covenant people. And you see that over and over throughout um, this sort of chronicling of the history. Um, you know, when you read them both, you, you know, you read them back to back and you start hearing some of the same stories. And, and um, if there is a redundancy there, mm-hmm. okay, why have them both? Yeah. And, and you could ask the same question and people do about, in about the gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's kind of the same issue in terms of, well, why do I need the same story twice or three times or four times? And then what do I do if it appears that there's differences between them? Um, the same situation is going to come up with Kings and Chronicles. You're going to see some of the same stories and they're going to be told mostly the same, but there's going to be a few details that are added in one or not in the other, that sort of thing. And, and, um, and, and first of all, I mean, I think it's just important to acknowledge that's actually a good thing um, rather than to say this is pointless or even this is a challenge to our faith or something like that. It, I think it's a really good thing to say, man, this is a gift. We get, we get, we get two stories, two versions of the story, two perspectives that there's value in that. And so there's a kind of a posture there that I want to maintain, but the way that it's going to play out is, is these are written by different people and for different reasons. Um, obviously, it's all God breathed. We talk about that. It all tells one story, and yet the writers of this are going to have slightly different reasons for what they do. So, for example, and, and the best way I can frame this up is whoever is writing Kings, and there's theories, but it's officially anonymous. Whoever is writing Kings is writing that while the while the Southern Kingdom is in captivity, and so it's kind of written with this. Why did this happen? We were God's chosen people. What happened? 
And the answer that he's going to give is basically you became too much like the other nations and you, you, um, you walked the pattern of other nations, the sin of other nations, the idolatry. And so God gave you over to other nations, but there's still hope. Um, and so that, that's kind of this overarching theme in, um, in Kings and, and he, whoever wrote Kings is going to focus a lot on, um, the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Um, and he's going to write about, here's why the Northern kingdom went into captivity. Here's why the Southern kingdom. So it's, so it's kind of a lot of that, that thing. Um, the Chronicles on the other hand, that's written after the Southern kingdom has come out of captivity. And so it's written, you know, 70 years later or something like that. Um, and so it has a different question. And, and the question there is kind of, okay, what do we do? What do we do differently this time around? And so its focus is going to be a little bit more on, number one, just the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom doesn't really show up in, in Chronicles because it's only the Southern Kingdom that came out of captivity. So he's going to focus on the Southern Kingdom. And when I say he, I mean the Chronicler, which I think it's just an incredibly great nickname for this guy. But that's what that's how scholars refer to this guy as the chroniclers. Um, but so why, you know, and then so and he's also going to focus on the priests in terms of, okay, the priests, the Passover, these things that that the God gave us, that may be a path forward. That's or not maybe that will be a path forward. Is let's let's recall what God has done for us and let's move forward in light of that. And so. He's going to focus more on priests. He's going to focus more on, you know, those sorts of things. That's going to be a lot of his focus. He's not going to mention the prophets as much because he's in a new season where the priests are such a are such a key figure. And and I think it's through this that we can see different perspectives, and it's really a great thing. Yeah, and it, you know, one of the theories on the chronicler, yeah. which we could start maybe a basketball team, or like a movie, like that could be something. like a superhero or yeah, something. It could be, could be. We have to think about that costume. Yeah. But they'd be bearded. There's yeah. no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, because one of the theories is that it's Ezra. Yeah, if you look at the last verse of Second Chronicles and the first verse of Ezra, there's they're almost identical. And if it is Ezra, or certainly someone who would have been coming out of captivity, um, you just see why some of these themes reminding them, you know what I mean, of of where they've come and how they got there and how they can remain in fellowship with God would fit sort of uh, Ezra's motif, or at least what what would have been needed, you know, in that time yeah. out of fear of going back into captivity. Yep. Right. Yep. 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 So yeah, great. I think those are great perspectives. Um, so part of what we do for Institute is we give our students key readings. We don't necessarily ask them to read everything. We, we, we hope they are, but if you can't read, you know, all of first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, at least read these chapters. And one of them you picked was second Chronicles five. So that, that is folks in the dedication of the temple. Mm-hmm. Why that chapter, uh, talk, talk with us all about that. Um, and why is that so significant? Yeah. So, um, I think so second Chronicles five really through seven, um, is going to talk about the building of the temple, uh, or really the dedication of the temple. Um, and I mean, you look at, I mean, there's several chapters devoted to it. It's dealt with in Kings and in Chronicles. It's really, I mean, I would argue it is the high water mark of Israelite history as a nation. Um, I mean, I, I would look at it and I'd say, really, you got, you got the, the Exodus and you got this, the dedication of the temple. And those are kind of these two hallmarks of Israelite history. Uh, one is God's deliverance of his people. And then the second is, is God's presence with his people. And th- those are just these two 
hugely significant things, which we look at it through this lens and say, boy, that is, you know, I mean, there's salvation, God's deliverance of his people. And then there's the giving of the Holy Spirit, God's presence with his people. Um, So there, you know, obviously there, there's big stuff there. Um, But if you just look at this in, within the context of Chronicles, this comes after the Davidic covenant. So God has promised to David, um, you know, there's this moment where David says, I'm going to build, or David says, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord says, I'm actually going to build you a house. And so it's this covenant moment of here's what's coming forward. Then David's son Solomon actually does build a temple. Um, and, and a temple is, you know, it symbolizes a few different things. Number one, it is, it's, so it's the transition from worship with the tabernacle, which is what um, they had in the wilderness, to a, a permanent um, a permanent location of worship. And so a temple is a, it's a meeting place of man and God. Uh, so it's a place where they meet. It's also a place of, of repentance and forgiveness and restoration. And so it's where, you know, there's going to be sacrifices there. And so there's, there's restoration and forgiveness there. It's also a place that's going to display God's greatness to the nations that, um, it's a symbol that, um, God and his worship is central to our survival. Uh, and so the fact that we have built a temple in a sense represents, I hate to say we've arrived because of the connotations of that phrase, but kind of as a nation, we've arrived. We, we're in our land. Some of the promise has been fulfilled. And and it carries with it this weight of like, okay, is this it? Like, mm-hmm. has the covenant been fulfilled? I mean, we talk about that with our theme of, God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people, you know, I think that's kind of the weight when you read this chapter is you can kind of feel the people saying, is this it? Like, are we there? And, and, and now, I mean, again, this is something I, I sometimes call the, the great kind of like you read it and you're like, is this it? Well, kind of like, this is really, really good. And yet it's not quite everything. Yeah. From our perspective, Right, we see the here and not yet, but that's a great point. Is there, is there seeing this dedication? Is there in the temple? It's kind of the first time we recognize, or they would think that the promised land is now fully there. Mm-hmm. So the battles are over for the most part. You know, worship has been restored for the most part. You know, the priests are doing what they're supposed to do. This this thing they can look at and it puts their God on display and their relationship on display is there. And that hadn't happened before. It took a lot from, you know, Joshua to now to get to this moment. So great point that they have to be thinking, okay, this is it, right? All these promises are done in the temple today. Yeah. And, and in this moment, so second Chronicles five, what happens is the ark is brought into the temple. Um, and then it, it, the, at the end of the chapter, um, you know, the, the subheading in most, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of Bibles is going to say the glory of God fills the temple. And so there's, there's worship, there's singing. And then chapter five, verse four, 13 says the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Well, you read that through, through a lens of the whole Bible and you say, that's exactly what happened to the end of, of Exodus. When they built the tabernacle, the, the, when God was in the, the, the pillar of cloud, he then dwelled in the tabernacle. Well, this is 400 years later. I mean, this is, this isn't like next week. I mean, this is 400 years later and the same thing is happening. And so for the people, there is a, there's a continuity with their history as a people and God's promises to them and his presence with them. And there is a, 
this truly is the temple of God. There truly is something significant here. Um, and then it says, the next verse is the first verse of chapter six. It says, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I've built you a lofty house and a place for your dwelling forever. I mean, there's that word dwell again and again. But then interestingly, he goes on and uh, this is six verse 18. He says, but will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and even the heavens highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So you can even see in Solomon there this, but but is this is this it? Like, this is wonderful, but is this it? And it's this theme that is all through the Old Testament. God's dwelling among his people, and now he's dwelling more and more in depth in a sense. And yet still, everybody recognizes, Solomon recognizes, but is this God can't really dwell in a house, like a, a house that I've built. And so what do we do with that? So anyway, so that's probably, that's why I think this is such a big, big moment. Yeah. And that moment doesn't last. Right. <laughs> right. I right. mean, yeah, yeah. as as we see the uh, God's people throughout the ages in our own lives, those high moments only seem to highlight the low moments, yeah. the, the depth of our fall. So um, what happens as you walk centuries from that moment of time that kind of bring things down a bit. Well, and you don't even have to walk centuries. I mean, you look at Solomon's own life. I mean, this is one of the two great moments, I would argue, of Israelite history. And within years in Solomon's own life, he's turning to other gods, which, you know, it's easy to cast stones at, at Solomon. But, I mean, I mean, you got to point the fingers at yourself and, and say... Man, God has been so good to me with salvation, with other things, and yet my heart is so easily prone to wander, as as the as the song says. And so, in Solomon's life, and 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 he really probably typifies Israel in some ways. Um, he marries women from other nations, and his heart it says that his heart goes after them, and that's really the story of of the nation as a whole. Is they marry other nations in terms of tying themselves um, in some ways. And their heart starts to go after those nations and their and their gods. And so I think that that's probably, again, you look at Solomon's life and that's that's how it plays out. So um, it happens in Solomon's life. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is king. And during Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom splits in two. And, uh, and there's a northern kingdom, like I said, Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. And so Rehoboam and his descendants, so the the Davidic line, the line through David, is the southern kingdom. And then the northern kingdom is a separate line of kings. Uh, the first one's named Jeroboam, and there's a whole a whole series of them. And, and basically, they go separate ways. Basically, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but basically, the northern kingdom is a long progression downward. I mean, it is... I, I mean, I, I made a chart at one point of here's every king and how they're judged by Scripture. And pretty much everyone is... Is negatively. There's a couple of kingdom kings in the in the new in um, in the northern kingdom that you'd say uh, they did a couple of things that you're kind of right. like, uh, but pretty much every king is negative um, is judged negatively. The southern kingdom, there's a little more of an up and down. You got a few figures like uh, Hezekiah is viewed real strongly, Josiah. So every few generations, there's a king who will call the nation back to the Lord. But then even with them, a lot of times it'll say. Um, and yet he didn't get rid of all the idols. And yet he didn't. So, so that's kind of how they're how they're how they're judged. But basically, the northern kingdom has a pretty pretty quick progression downwards. Um, and again, they last about two hundred years before Assyria 
takes them over and brings them into captivity. And then the Southern Kingdom has another 140 years after that. And so uh, it's kind of uh, as the king goes, the nation goes. It's not totally lined up, um, but that's loosely um, that's loosely the progression is we see what happens with the kings and their hearts, and that's the way that's the way the nation goes. Yeah, and then if you get to the ends of these books, you know, we're we have to stop at some place, right, and kind of wrap up a teaching, and then come and give yeah. sort of the you know the the post-exilic prophets come, you know, at the end at the end here yep. as we look at some of those. But but so if we just stopped at the end of the book of Second Kings, if we just stopped at the end of the Chronicles, um, what's our status there? And then with that, we're going to transition in and kind of take a little New Testament approach and, and look into the books. Yeah, so um, it, they both end with hope, which I think is is really really neat because without, I mean, without bits of hope, this is a depressing story if you're honest. And so, but they both end with hope. Um, kings end, so they're in captivity. They're they're in captivity in Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world, that makes a habit as a, as a nation of crushing other nations, like. They should disappear. I mean, we've talked about this in other in other books of the Bible. Like, this is another moment where the God's people should disappear. Um, but it says basically, um, and I'll paraphrase a little bit here. But Second Kings end with uh, Jehoiachin, so the the king of Israel or the king of Judah, I should say. Um, it says that he changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And so it kind of ends with this the king's line, the Davidic line still continues. So that's how King's End, the book of King's End is, the book is over, but the kings aren't over. The Davidic line is continuing. So that's how King's ends. And then Chronicles ends, um, in a sense, even more dramatically. It ends with uh, Cyrus, who's the king, um, I mean, after Babylon, Babylon's taken over, and we'll get into this another week because I don't want to jump too far ahead. But so Cyrus is the king of Persia, and he is going to send, uh, he allows um, people to go back to Judah and resettle. Um, and it says, in the first year of Cyrus, uh, let's see, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he wrote, he put a saying into writing, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so it ends with this, go back to the land. One of the really, really neat things about that is that that parallels perfectly the last verse of the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, go make disciples of all nations. So essentially it's this same, Cyrus thinks he has all the authority and is telling the people of God, go and rebuild. And then Jesus comes at the end of Matthew and says, I actually have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm commissioning you to go and make disciples of all nations. So I'm I'm making a house that is all nations, not of just your people. And so um, I just, it's so cool. I think how those things um, end with hope and tie together with the New Testament. Yeah, I love that. That's a great um, sort of parallel to see. I hadn't, have never seen that before. I think that's, that's amazing. And, and what did I from somebody else? Anything, anything else that's good, I've stole from somebody else at some <laughs> point. Well, it's amazing that, you know, a Persian king would care about God's mm-hmm. people and the temple. And obviously he was stirred up by the spirit scripture tells us. And, and you get, obviously at a later day, we'll get into Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah, yeah. Nehemiah particularly is you see yeah. who came forward and you did see a king 
a king in the uh, lineage of David stepped forward and a, and a high priest stepped forward in the articles yeah. and all these things the Lord yeah. preserved. So yeah. Yeah. you mentioned obviously this parallel with Christ. Any other places as we look through sort of the lens of the New Testament and recognize that Christ is the fulfillment of the types that we found in the Old Testament? I mean, where else do you see Jesus in uh, in these books? Yeah, I think it's in the in the roles themselves, and so the roles, the the main players in Kings and Chronicles are the people who play the role of prophet and priest and king. So there's these three separate roles that show up in those in those books, and Jesus ultimately, and I'll walk through this real briefly, but Jesus ultimately fulfills all of those roles. And so what we say is we say, well through Kings and Chronicles, we understand what a prophet is, and therefore, we can understand something about what Jesus did and who he was. Kings and Chronicles shows us what a priest is, so we can understand Jesus as priest. Same with king. Um, And so, a prophet, a prophet is somebody who is going to declare God's message. That's Elijah, that's Elisha. Um, there's, There's many other prophets within these books. And so, consistently they're going to the kings of Israel and Judah and saying, this is what the Lord says. You need to listen to it. Or they're going to the people and saying, this is what you need to do. They're declaring truth. And, and, um, and so we have this image of this is what a prophet is. And then what happens when Jesus shows up? He doesn't just declare God's message. He is God's message. Um, and then you look at what he does and there's the sermon on the Mount where he consistently says something like, you've heard that it was said, you know, blank, um, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, and so he is very, I mean, he's identifying his own words as the message of God to the people. And so he's the living word. He also proclaims the word. Um, there's also the verse in, that opens Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says, um, God, after he spoke long ago to our fathers and the prophets, so in the, in the old days, that's how he was. He spoke to the prophets. He says, then in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so the opening of Hebrews is going to say, we used to have prophets. Now we have Jesus. And Jesus is new and better in a sense. And so um, so that's prophets. Um, priests. So priests were the ones who served in the temple, who um, inter- intermediated between God and man, did those sorts of things. Um, and so there's, there's, again, a number of these in Kings and Chronicles. There's one named Jehoiada, who's a who's a big figure and kind of helps um, Josiah lead the kingdom. You know those sorts of things. So there's the, there's these figures, um, but that that's essentially their role. Well, then you look at Jesus and what is what does Jesus do? Well, what Jesus does, and again Hebrews is a big one for this, is it says that he is the great high priest. He is the one who enters into the holy place on our behalf intermediates for us and and doesn't offer up other sacrifices the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats is what it says but it offers up his own sacrifices and he continually makes intercession for us so again and and hebrews is going to say all the other priests they had to first sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the people well jesus offers one sacrifice hebrews 10 is going to tell us every priest stands daily ministering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And so Jesus is the new and better priest. 
And then we have kings. And so what's a king? Well, we all know what a king does. A king rules. He's supposed to exercise justice and defend and, and all those sorts of things. And there's all these kings. David is the best known, but there's obviously so many others. Well, who's Jesus? Jesus is our king. He's the He's the new Adam who, who rules. Um, and then one day he will come and make his rule even more explicit. Even though it's there all the time, it becomes even more explicit. And so... Obviously, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of New Testament scriptures about that. Even Jesus before Pilate saying, "I am a king. I'm just not a king of this world." Um, and so we see Jesus as our king, as our ruler. And so I think that's just a really powerful thing. Yes, sometimes there's explicit prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, but a lot of times there's this typology of. Okay, there's a role of prophet and priest and king, and now through Jesus, I understand what that really means um, and how I should respond to him. Yeah, we talked about in the first podcast about looking through, you know, the scripture from a Christocentric viewpoint, and I think it's great as you have done so well as you always do, and you think about that in light of a book of history, you know, all the genres of scripture. And here you've walked through a book of history, which we can just roll over like facts and dates and events. Um, but we still see richly on display this theme of God does highest glorify himself, how he's dwelling among a holy covenant people. And as you've articulated, as you see the people rebel against God's ways, um, don't take his, they're not taking his holiness seriously. Um, and as kings do that and kingdoms drift away, people drift away, temples crumble, kingdoms fall, walls fall down. And, and yet, um, these narratives end up with this great ray of hope. Wait, he's not finished. Yeah. And we see God holding, you know, truthfully, faithfully to the covenants that he's made all along, which is exciting. It's great to be on the new Testament side to be able to see yeah. it all play out. So yeah. these types have reality. We're able to look at Christ and just give him glory that has been about him all along. So, and I kind of feel like saying, stick with us because I mean, you and I are saying, okay, in the later books, we're going to come back on this. And so, um, anyways, it's just, it's fun to see it continue to play through through these different, uh, episodes is the wrong word. I mean, it is an episode, it but it's yeah. a continuing story. So yeah, I feel like when my kids have seen a movie, they really want me to see and like, oh, you're going to love this next part. Yeah, okay, yeah. Wait, this next part. Oh, this yeah. is the best part coming up. <laughs> hey, come on. So anyway, well, it's been great, Andrew. Uh, great job as always. You always put a lot of study into it and have put a lot of time in front of our students. So um, grateful and look forward to the next one. Me too. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Mm-hmm.